ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. My guest on Conversations today is Paul Kelly. When Paul's hefty memoir, How to Make Gravy, came out a few years ago, slotted in among the song lyrics and stories, the photos and set lists, there were poems. Poems by W.B. Yeats and Shakespeare, by Seamus Heaney and Judith Wright, to name just a few. That's not surprising because, after all, one way of looking at Paul Kelly is that he is Australia's best-known poet. He's definitely the poet we're most likely to know by heart, whether it's From St Kilda to King's Cross or From Little Things Big Things Grow, all the way to Don't Forget a Dollop of Tomato Sauce for Sweetness and that Extra Tang. Paul Kelly the poet is jostling up against Paul Kelly the songwriter more and more these days. His latest album puts 13 poems about birds to music and he's just released a selection of his favourite poems in a book called Love is Strong as Death. It's a book, Paul says, that he wants to be a friend to its readers. Hi Paul, welcome to Conversations. Hi Sarah, how are you going? Has poetry been a friend to you? Is that how you think about it? Uh, yeah, I'd say definitely. I encountered poetry fairly, fairly young, I guess. Uh, it first hit me hard in um, high school, studying Macbeth at school, and also we did Ode to a Nightingale, and that made a big impression on me as well. What kind of friend, though? It's not a friend that can turn up with, you know, a bottle of wine or help you move house. How is poetry a friend? Well, I think poetry, well, it can, you can, it can be a companion, you can... Anywhere you are, you can recall a poem. Well, these days it's so easy to just to maybe look up a poem you don't know the words to. A poem can make you laugh. It can, be, it can give you comfort. It can also challenge you. They're all the things that friends do. And it can just be with you through good times and the times that aren't so good. Tell me about that first encounter with poetry when you were a high schooler and, and your class was reading Macbeth. What kind of reaction did you have to that play? Well, the scene I remember most vividly is, or I probably remember Lady Macbeth the most. She was an extraordinary character. Um, Come you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here and fill me from the toe to the top full of cruelty. Stop up the access and passage to remorse, etc., etc. There was just uh, she was such, such a, a strong character. The play, uh, I'm probably, you know, got deeper into the play as I got older. I, I can't remember exactly when I was 16, but the thing that strikes me so much about that play is, is Macbeth's utter self-awareness of what he's doing, his horror at what he's doing, but he, he can't stop himself. I mean, he's very much driven by Lady Macbeth, but this horror and awareness that follows him every step he takes until he, the step he, where he can't go backwards anymore. And we can include Shakespeare's plays in a conversation about poetry because part of his freakish genius is that these amazing expositions of character are written in verse or, or blank verse. So that's how Macbeth the play sneaks into the Paul Kelly poetry book. Yeah, in fact, he's probably, yeah, he is represented the most. I think uh, he's, he's got the most entries, not far above um, Anonymous and Gehuda Amachai. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of pieces from the plays, which are, they're all in iambic pentameter, set ten syllables a line, so definitely I'd call that verse. And they've got a few of the sonnets as well. Sitting back when you would have been in, in high school in Adelaide and hearing some of those lines for the first time, I think you can almost have a physical reaction to 
a poem that's using language in the kind of heightened way that, that it's getting used in Macbeth. Yeah, I do get a physical reaction to Shakespeare. I get Shakespeare, I get that, uh, I find the language very electric and thrilling. It's, it's playful, it's charged, it's dramatic. Uh, I, it's really hard to say why, but it does something, you know, that, that speech I can re- remember, it, probably every time I hear it, the hairs go up in the back of my neck. It's a good marker if you're getting that physical hmm. reaction. You mentioned Keats' Ode to a Nightingale. What was it about that poem that jumped out at you as a teenager? What was it? I, I don't know. Again, it was heightened language, so I had to work a little bit to get into the poem. It just seemed so so rich in imagery. Oh, for, oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrine with beaded bubbles winking at the brim. I think it's very sensuous language. It's, it's a sound poem. Poems, I think, they should work as on a level of sound first and then, then meaning can sort of reveal itself over time. I often think, you know, that schools maybe tend to teach poetry in a way that can put people off. Poetry is often seen as something that's a, a test or... We have to get at the meaning of this poem or we have to understand or analyse this poem. And I don't think you have to at all. There's still some poems I love that I, I don't, wouldn't have got at the meaning of them yet. They're, they're multiple meanings and, they're, and sometimes they're vague meanings, and, but sometimes they're just so uh, wonderful to say. I think that's true for me of the Keats poem, Ode to a Nightingale. Like, I couldn't tell you what that poem was about, I don't think, but so many of those phrases have just wash into you because they're so beautiful and so strong. And if it's a poem that you've learnt by heart, I guess those phrases, do they just sort of pop up in your mind now and again? You're doing the shopping and suddenly you feel <laughs> tender as the night or something. Uh, yeah, I would go probably, you know, sometimes if I'm you know stuck somewhere in a queue or just waiting and haven't got a book handy, I might think, oh, let's see if I can remember that poem. I have to keep going over things to remember them. They don't sort of stick with me forever. So poems... Um, you know, if I can't quite remember it all, I have a sneaky look at the phone. Keats wrote in a blaze of talent in the early 1800s and he was dead by 25 from consumption. He kind of fits the stereotype of the romantic poet. That might have been part of the appeal as a teenager for you as well. Yeah, maybe in, in, in that way he is sort of the stereotypical poet, you know, he consumption and early death and this incredible burst flowering of work. Um, you know, it was all the odes really that stuck with me, Ode to a Nightingale, Ode to Melancholy, Ode to Autumn. There's a whole lot of Keats that, that doesn't really grab me at all, you know, flowery dells and meads and every now and then there's a poem that just breaks through and hits you right between the eyes. I think that's true of a lot of authors and most poets, the, their body of work, you might only like a half a dozen poems, they might have written 300, 400, but maybe there's just a handful that speak to you and you shouldn't feel intimidated by the fact that you don't really get their other poems or or like their other poems. I think there's an expectation that if you, you know, someone recommends a poet to you or a particular poem and then you, you go and look that poet up uh, and you think, oh, no, that, yeah, that's not really doing anything for me. You know, people sometimes think it's an, uh, poetry is supposed to be some kind of intelligence test. I, I think poetry should be 
be fun. I'm from the Robbie Burns school. I rhyme for fun. <laughs> That's what he said. Uh, even you know, even the the melan you know the melancholy poets like Thomas Hardy or or Philip Larkin, who was seen as a as a not a particularly cheerful poet. But you look into their lives, and they loved making poetry. It was fun for them. There's even a quote from Thomas Hardy's wife saying, Tom is very pleased with himself today. He's just written a very melancholy poem. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it was, they're, they're, they're fun to write. And, and if you are, you know, it's also the theory that if you are battling with problems in life, that writing a poem is a, a, a way to help you. Were there many books of poetry in your house when you were growing up, Paul? I don't remember lots of books of poetry. There were lots of, lots of books, mainly novels. So, but I remember... Cardinal Gibrand coming into the house through my um, older older siblings. This is in the early early seventies. So, in fact, my first poetry was a bit like um, was a lot like Cardinal Gibrand actually. So the first poetry that you wrote, yeah, it was that sort of style. I and mean, you know, the poem to parents is was it your sons and daughters? Yeah, your children are not yours. They they are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. His poetry really seemed to coincide with the times. In terms of the, the books that you had at home, what do you remember being read to when you were a kid, you know, going to sleep? Would your dad or your mum read you stories at bedtime? Uh, our first memories of the, um, the books on the saints, there was the Six O'Clock Saints, uh, The Lives of the Saints and The Martyrs. So that, that's probably... There's some high adventure stories <laughs> in those ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's death. There's torture. There's escape. It's um, they're they're, they're not um shy and retiring. No, those saint stories. It's all, it's all there. <laughs> Being read to as a kid too. It's such a, a tender thing for a parent to do for a child. It allows it. It's a really special moment. I think for a parent when everything else in the day or in the disciplinarian, you know, duties of a parent is put to one side and you can have that moment of intimacy. Mm -hmm. Do you have memories of those kind of moments with your parents over books? Uh, yeah, I do. Sitting on, on Dad's knee while he was reading. Um, I remember he, would, he was also reading in French and uh, French to the some of the older children, my elder sisters, because he, he had French and, and Latin. So um, that was sort of, while that was, you know, studying, he would be there reading him some stories in French. Um, but there was a lot of us, there was eight, so um, I don't know if you could get round to all of us every, <laughs> every night. Um, but we were all pretty, you know, definitely reading pretty, pretty young. So I, can rem I can't remember the time when I f could first read a book on my own. But I can distinctly remember when uh, my first child, Declan, could read a book on his own. And it was such a red letter day when, you know, you've been reading stories for years and then he's happy just to read the book on his own. I think every parent loves that. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. So we were, you know, I was in a, a bunk, bunk, a one bed and two bunks, so three of us with my brothers in one room for quite a while. And, uh, yeah, we'd all be reading our books. I think Alistair McLean was a, a big one in the uh, early teens. Guns Are Never Own and what else? <laughs> Where Eagles Dare. Yeah. Uh, chewed, yeah, just started to chew through the books. Where had your mum and dad met, Paul? They met in, in Melbourne. Dad had grew up in Adelaide but had 
come over during the war and was working for the rationing commission. Um, he had uh, a shadow on his lung. He wasn't, he, so he wasn't able to be um, called up for the army. But he he worked with the with the rationing commission, and then they they met through some mutual friend, and she was. Um, she had grown up in Melbourne. Her her father was Italian, and she, you know, she was studying singing and languages and played the piano. It's very beautiful. She was, um, I guess, I think this incredible exotic beauty. She ate garlic <laughs> and cooked squid. Um, so he uh, courted her for a while. In fact, he got the hurry up because she was. Quite a few uh, other gentlemen had their eyes on her, and it was during the war. There was a lot of American soldiers about, and there was she was going off to uh, dances and parties with American soldiers. And I think Dad quietly got the tip from Mum's mother, Nonna. She said, "I think you should, you know, don't wait too long." So he took her to the. I think he proposed to her at the Latin. This is a the, um, a restaurant or a coffee shop probably the first Italian-style one in Melbourne, and um, proposed to her. But the story goes that he, he didn't get down on one knee or anything like that. He just said, so what shall we call our children? <laughs> so romantic. <laughs> <laughs> and why do you think she chose him rather than any of those American GIs or other people who were interested in garlic and squid? I think he was handsome. He was gentle. He was funny. He was smart. That's enough, isn't it? <laughs> That's ticking a lot of boxes. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned that she was a musician and your mum's parents were musicians. What stories were you told about them and the career they had in music? Well, we got told a lot about uh, our grandparents' adventures as opera singers and, and the story of my grandfather, Ercole Filippini, who came out during World War I. Um, he'd been... He actually grew up in Buenos Aires in Argentina with his Italian aunt and uncle and then showed talent as a singer and then went to La Scala and sang there in Milan, very famous opera house. Um, he'd done, again, again, he'd done his, some service in Argentina so he, he didn't have to go into the army in Italy. He joined a, a Spanish opera company that was touring during World War I the Gonzalez brothers, and they were touring, you know, what was called the East, Southeast Asia, India, New Zealand and Australia. And they stopped in Australia for a while. I think, the, if I get the story right, I think the war ended. He decided to stay and he started up, uh, started teaching, singing the bel canto method, the traditional, you know, Italian opera method. And my grandmother, Annie McFarlane, Irish-Australian, uh, was one of his students, and then the story goes that one day he was teaching her to sing this song. She was singing it called Ideale, which is a, a love song, declaration of love. And he said, "Hold on, let me let me show you how to sing it." And then he sang it to her, and that, then she realised he was actually proposing to her. You could do that in those days. The, the student, the teacher, could. Uh, <laughs> Could sweep the student off her feet. Well, she was swept, swept off her feet by him. Would she tell you that story? Was that something she liked to remember? Oh, yeah, she liked yeah. that story, yeah. 
they became quite a team. They 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 started an opera company of their own called the Italo Australian Opera Company. This is way way before government subsidies. So they would travel around with. Um, uh, I mean, they did full productions in in the cities. They had a, they one stage they were in Perth for a, quite a while, and also in Melbourne and the season in Adelaide. But the, it's probably the most famous story that they would tell us of their tours in Queensland uh, with a very small little troop, I guess. They would they would just have a piano player, a few singers, a baritone, bass, sopranos, and sometimes a volunteer chorus. And they would just do excerpts from various operas, Verdi and Puccini and and so on. And they they toured uh, up the Queensland coast, a lot of Italian a lot of Italians working on the cane fields in Innisfail and Ingham, all up that Queensland coast. They also went west as far as Longreach on the train and just performed opera. So do you ever find yourself playing in some of the halls that they must have played in on their trips around Australia? Uh, they played at Her Majesty's in Adelaide, which we've done quite a few shows at. So every time I've, I've played there, I, I always, always think of them. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like your, your granddad was a bit of a prankster. What? The, the joke he played on his mother-in-law with some eggs? He, this, again, the story goes in that, <laughs> that he somehow made a little hole in, in the egg um, that was not very noticeable and got all the yolk out and then filled it up with flour and then did a couple of eggs like that and put it at the, the top of a pile of eggs in the kitchen. He was living with his mother-in-law and they had, uh, they had chooks. So they, they were getting eggs from the chooks. So she went to break the eggs one morning. He was obviously there waiting. <laughs> <laughs> she broke the egg and nothing but flour came out. And he said, uh, oh, that's what happens when you feed the chooks too much spaghetti. You know? it's, like, it's like a Monty Python joke. That's a, I actually, an obscure prank. <laughs> very obscure and very difficult to replicate. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a few tall, um, few people in, in my family that like to exaggerate the truth. So I did try to replicate replicate that experiment myself. But um, this just took me days. Took it, get that, to get the yolk out, get the flour in. Yeah, and it, yeah, get the flour in and uh, also make the egg feel, you know, properly heavy and not too suspiciously light. These were the, the days before Netflix, Paul. People had to fill their time somehow and <laughs> flour egg pranks must yeah. have been one of them. He must have had some time on his hands. <laughs> as, you, as you say, you grew up in a Catholic family. You're reading the, the books of the saints. What about the poetry of that tradition? Do you remember feeling poetry in the mass when you'd go along as a kid? Um, I don't know if I remember that so much. I think I probably started to appreciate the Bible as I got older, but I, I think it did help that I'd heard it, heard it a lot through going to, to mass and all the various ceremonies of the Catholic Church. So the stories were familiar and, and the language we weren't reading from the King James Bible. It was more of a modern edition um, in the 60s and 70s. But at some point I must have discovered the King James Bible and, and just started, you know, reading it for interest. And that's sort of been probably uh, a big influence ever since. I, you know, I think it's an extraordinary book and I've used quite a f- few passages from it in the in love as strong as death. Well, it's also because it, it, the language of the Bible saturates, you know, the history of Western poetry. I, there are so many of the poems in in the book that 
there's biblical imagery or reference to biblical stories, and that's true in one of, of the writers that's represented quite a bit, Yehuda Amakai, an Israeli writer. How mm. did you first come across his poetry? Um, a friend just, just sent me a book of his poems, and, yeah, I, I was drawn to him straight away. He was, he, there was, a, I, guess, I guess, a poet that, in some ways the, the poems felt like someone thinking. They were very conversational and warm. They were funny sometimes. They spoke about terrible things. Other times there's a, a, a really quite savage poem, I guess, in, in the book called the, the Diameter of the Bomb. But he was a poet that mixes things up, sort of high-flowing language with really, really colloquial. He's often references the Bible. Um, but you never feel like it's, you know, too much... Um, you don't feel like it's a test. Oh, I've got to... You know, it's an, you know, this poem's too intellectual for me. He's very... He's a very approachable poet, and it's for the same reason I like Shakespeare, that Shakespeare mixes up, you know, tragedy and comedy often right next to each other. And famously in the Porter scene in Macbeth where, where the, the murder's just been committed, but then you have a little scene with the Porter talking about the effects of alcohol on sexual prowess. So, yeah, Shakespeare always mixes up the humour with the serious and... Amakai's a lot like that. So I, I like poets that sort of have that sort of mash. There's another line in this is poems about um, um, I'm more like a mortar and pestle, just looking for a little fragrance. <laughs> <laughs> Can you read us one of the the Amakai poems that you've included in this collection? Yes. I don't know this one off by heart. <laughs> As you said, it's not a test. <laughs> A letter of recommendation. On summer nights, I sleep naked in Jerusalem. My bed stands on the brink of a deep valley without rolling down into it. In the daytime, I walk around with the Ten Commandments on my lips like an old tune someone hums to himself. Oh, touch me, touch me, good woman. That's not a scar you feel under my shirt. That's a letter of recommendation folded up tight from my father. All the same, he's a good boy and full of love. I remember my father waking me for early prayers. He would do it by gently striking my forehead, not by tearing away the blanket. Since then, I love him even more. And as his reward, may he be wakened gently and with love on the day of the resurrection. Paul Kelly reading the Yehuda Amakai poem, A Letter of Recommendation. As you said, Paul, that's so beautiful. On one hand, there's the image of a, a father waking a son gently, but then there's the idea of end of days and being woken for resurrection. And they're both there so naturally together. Yeah, yeah. That's his great gift. You said that you'd started writing bits of poetry in the style of Kikil Gibran, which makes sense for young adolescent. Were you showing them to anyone or was this private poetry writing in a journal? No, I showed them, pretty much just showed them to family, yeah, just the family, brothers. Was that a nervous a, a thing to do, do you remember, or were you, did it feel like a vulnerable thing or not? Yeah, it did, but uh, I must have had enough, you know, confidence to, to do it. You're kind of shy and proud about it at the same time, yeah. I, I got encouraged yeah, I think they were, yeah, I wrote, you know, I, wrote a, I was sort of writing about things that had happened. I, I think I wrote m m my brother's 
friend had died in a motorcycle accident. I might have written a poem about that. Um, probably pretty presumptuous to do that, but I showed it, showed it to Martin, my brother. A young poet needs a friendly audience, I think, or it's easier to just give up. Oh, yeah. I mean, all you, all you need to, yeah, you don't need to be uh, highly praised or anything, you just need to be encouraged. As a songwriter, the best words of advice I ever got was from Don Walker when I showed him some of my early songs in 1980. And uh, people who know Don know he's a man of few words. He said, keep writing. That's all he said. He didn't, didn't say that oh, they're good or they're not good. I mean, I know those songs. They weren't good. <laughs> he, he just said, keep writing. And that was the best, best thing he could have said. Well, you were starting to make your way as a musician and you moved to Melbourne. You were also picking up some, some work as a TV extra in those early years in Melbourne. Paul, what shows would you have appeared in the background in? Um, Skyways, Cop Shop. Uh, so the Crawford production shows because I moved into a share house. My friend Chris Langman, who uh, co-wrote Leaps and Bounds with me, he was working as a director at Crawford's on, on their shows. And I'm not sure if I made it into the Sullivans, but uh, I think Skyways <laughs> and Cop Shop were the, were the main ones. Did you have words or you just had to mill about in the no, background? No, just, just mill about, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in an in a early um, paycheck from... From that work, you went along to a bookstore to buy something on lay-by. Tell me about that purchase. Yeah, there's a bookshop on Truac Road in South Yarra called the Black Mask Bookshop, and uh, there was uh, this big volume of Shakespeare's complete works, in th- three volumes with you know illustrations and pictures, but just all the plays, or everything, the plays, the poems. This was maybe 1978 or something not long after I'd been in Melbourne. And I think it was $34, which is a princely sum <laughs> at the time. And I put $5, $5 down on lay-by. I remember that. And um, I said, can you keep that book for me? And um, after getting a cheque from, from Skyways or whatever it was, I went and paid it off and toted it home. Do you still have it? I still have it, yeah. <laughs> I remember the sort of the hunger for it. I, I really wanted it. And, of course, I still haven't. There's still plays in there I haven't read. I mean, I've never got to the bottom of Shakespeare. Never will. Broadcast. Podcast. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. Hear Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be aware this part of the conversation includes the name of someone who has died. So poetry has obviously been this sort of touchstone from you right from an early age, but it's something that I almost feel in Australia we sometimes sort of say in, you know, hushed tones like it's poetry. We're even scared of acknowledging it. What keeps people away from poetry, do you think? Uh, I think, like I was saying before, they sometimes think it's some kind of test or, and then they feel they have to, you know, they're going to feel, you know, inferior because, inferior because they don't get a poem or they don't understand the meaning of the poem, which I think is completely the wrong way to approach a poem. You know, I think 
probably the best way is to say it out loud first and then you start to get a, a feel for it. Um, and I think, you know, just to, maybe the culture is, is, is um, more, you know, oh, that's, you know, that's a bit odd, You're reading poetry. The fact is, is poetry is much closer to people than they realise. It's obviously in, in music and songs and some songs would definitely fulfil, you know, criteria of poetry and it's in you know it's in our language it's in a language we speak all the time without even people even knowing it and we do reach for it on ceremonial occasions you know people will say poems at funerals at weddings at birthdays at anniversaries and and so on and people make up silly little rhymes and it's it's everywhere and it's you know hip-hop's hip-hop's full of poetry i think and i i think there is a um, i sense a bit of a swing swing towards um, poetry not being, you know, this sort of far off, unattainable thing. There's a lot more young people are very comfortable with poetry and spoken word, slam poetry, and it's 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 all through hip hop. So I think it's I think poetry's on the march. I'm just happy to be one, a little foot soldier in the army. How does poetry sometimes feature in the Kelly family Christmases? Uh, we have. Uh, Sometimes we have, you know, maybe we're going to do a concert. If we're, we're not always together every Christmas, but when we have a, a large one when we all get together, there's usually, um, you know, some kind of concert where everyone has to do an item. You know, that could be um, singing a song, telling a joke, uh, reciting a poem, maybe making up some little performance. Um, my niece Georgie famously once did a, a tighter knot in a... Um, a lo- lolly snake with her tongue without <laughs> using her hands. That's probably the highlight for me. Um, I reckon your granddad could have turned up with his egg and flour trick. Yeah. It sounds right on Mark. Yeah, he would have all fallen asleep, I think, <laughs> before it finished. Um, my brother, John, he's got the man from Iron Bark. That's his. He'll, he'll, he'll recite that one from memory with all the actions and so on. And my English nephew... He's married to my niece, very English. He recited If by Rudyard Kipling one time, which is memorable. And he's also done um, the speech, Henry V's speech about this is, today is called, uh, today is the Feast of Caspian. You know, that's the band of brother speech. We few, we happy few. He that sheds his blood with me this day shall be my brother. This day shall gentle his condition. Um, he said that one too. So they're both in the book. Man from Iron Bark, <laughs> if is in there, um, and the Henry V speech on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt. People have still got time to learn off a few by Christmas if they're doing the same thing in their own families. You know, this should be a tradition across the nation. Yeah, they could all take a pick a poem from the book and <laughs> choose one each. There's all kinds of poems there. Short ones, funny ones, serious ones. And if that fails, get a lolly snake and see if you can yeah. tie a knot with it yeah. with your tongue. Tell me about your Aunt Pat, Paul, how poetry was something that brought the two of you together. Well, it didn't bring the two of us together. We were, you know, she's, she was a uh, favourite aunt, lived in Adelaide all her life, so it's always visit her every time I was in Adelaide. We all do, all, all, the, um, all my siblings would make, it, make a point to visit her. I guess it became especially... Um, you would make sure you got time to visit her after she became the only surviving member of my dad's generation. Dad was one of six, and then 
she survived by a long time, all the others. So it was only Pat was the last, the last link, I guess. Um, and she loved poetry. So sometimes we'd go and visit her, oh, one, you know, probably about 10, 10 years before she died. One time we started talking about poetry and she just started reciting poetry by, by memory. And um, the, the one, uh, these, and these are poems she'd learned in school. They told me Heraclitus, they told me you were dead. They brought me bitter news to hear and bitter tears to shed. I wept as I remembered how often you and I had tired the sun from talking and sent him down the sky. There's another verse, but um, that's the one I remember. But she knew it all. Um, and then we started, so we just started, she always, and she had books of poetry in the house, so if I go to visit her, we'd go and pick up a book and, and, uh, and maybe read something. She might read it and I might read it, read it to her. She, you know, she loved, she loved Keats and Yeats, all the traditional poets, and Thomas Hardy as well, all of whom poets that, that um, I've loved over the years. So that was a really good way to spend, spend the time. Sometimes we would also do the nine-letter word. <laughs> <laughs> You've been recording a lot of poems over the last few years. You did a whole album of Shakespeare sonnets. The new album is, is Poems About Birds. What makes you pick a poem for a song? And, and are there sometimes a poem that you love as a poem but you just can't make work as a song? Um, I don't understand how or why it works. Um, it really started when I was asked to take part in a uh, collaboration with James Ledger, the, the Perth composer, uh, putting poems to music for student orchestra, ANAM, Australian National Academy of Music in Melbourne. And I had never put a poem to music before then. I, I thought I didn't think it was possible to, not the way I worked anyway. The way I worked was always, you know, m muck around with a tune and a melody first and then get words to fit it. So uh, I'd had this... Um, uh, idea that if you had the words first, it would really restrict the music and make everything run on too rigid a rail. But doing that, doing uh, that collaboration and, and that show, it just sort of opened, opened, my, uh, opened my ears up, I guess, and I realised, oh, you can, I can do this. And actually it's very freeing, especially if the, you know, the poems don't rhyme, you can just take it anywhere. So after that show, I started just out of, you know, just for fun, just to see if I liked a poem, see if I could put it to music. And the first one I did after that show was Sonnet 18 by um, William Shakespeare, the famous one, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day. I put that to, to music and it was just like an old old, um, old folk tune, you know, the way the language sort of seemed to be like a, like a folk song. Um, and that led to doing the Shakespeare record of, putting some of his sonnets to music. Um, and the other th interesting thing I realised putting the sonnets to music is that how many parallels there were between a sonnet and, you know, the supposed rules of pop songwriting. Because the sonnet, you know, it rhymes, it has uh, regular metre, it's short, there's 14 lines, the first eight lines are like the first two verses. And then in a sonnet there's always what they call the volta or the turn, that's where... There's, but there's, there's sonnet is supposed to have some kind of change, a perspective or a point of view, or make another point, and that to me is like the bridge in a pop song, you know, where you just a change up. 
And then the, the sonnet always ends with, with two rhyming lines with the couplet, and that couplet can be used as a chorus. So um, that was an, uh, a good revelation for me to realise, oh, well, you can actually take a sonnet and make a pop song out of it. You've got a <laughs> chorus, you've got your bridge, and you've got your verses. Uh, that's probably why I continued on with that for a while. Um, and then, yeah, I just it's just become a habit of mine to to try and put palms to music that I like. And it's it, I guess it came along in a good time for me. I've been writing songs for 40 years. And um, at some point you just you, you get sick of your own words. And to know that there's other words out there, and obviously great words, the words that you love because you've, you've chosen them, and all you have to do is put music to them, um, it's kind of a relief. And it's, it's another way, it's sort of to find, I've been writing songs for 40 years, and for me to find another way to write songs is, is, feels like a gift. Sudden access to a whole poetic jukebox that you didn't know was there. Yeah. Can you sing us one of the songs that are on the new album then, 13 Ways to Look at Birds? Yes. I'm gonna, I'll do Barn Owl. I remember I read Barn Owl many years ago and um, uh, loved the poem. It's, you know, it's quite a um, hit-you-in-the-eyes type, type poem. It's... It's sort of almost it's brutal in a way. It's by Gwen Howard, Tasmanian poet. Um, got a couple of other, a uh, couple of uh, poems besides this one in the book. But this this poem, Bar Now, it is the uh, it stars a child, a bird, and a gun. And to paraphrase Chekhov, if a gun appears at the start of a poem, there's a good chance it's going to go off by the end. Daybreak, the household slept. I rose, blessed by the sun. A horny fiend I crept out with my father's gun Let him dream of a child Obedient angel mind Old no sail Robbed of power by sleep I knew my prize Who swooped home at this hour With daylight riddled eyes To his place on a high beam our old stables to dream life's useless time away I stood holding my breath in urine scented hay master of life and death a wisp-haired judge whose law would punish beak and claw my first shot struck he swayed, ruined, beating his only wing As I watched, afraid by the fallen gun A lonely child who believed death clean and fine Not this obscene bundle of stuff That dropped and dribbled through the loose straw Tangling in boughs and hopped blindly closer 
I saw those eyes that could not see mirror my cruelty. While the wrecked thing that could not bear the light nor hide hobbled in its own blood. My father reached my side, gave me the fallen gun. In what you have begun. I fired those blank eyes shone once into mine and slept. I leaned my head upon my father's arm and wept. Our blind and early son. For what I had begun. There's so much happening in terms of language in that poem and as well as the other poems that you put to music, Paul. But sometimes a great song lyric is really, really simple. You know, I think about the the Hank Williams song that you're singing on the new Lucky Oceans album, I Can't Help It If I'm Still In Love With You. You know, that's kind of pretty naff if you read that in a poetry book, but as a song, it gets straight to the, the heart of it. Songs and poems, they're, they're different as well, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, it is a blur, blurry line and they, you know, you could say song lyrics are, are a form of poetry. Um, they called Hank the Hillbilly Shakespeare. So, you know, to me, his lyrics are, are poetic. Um, I mean, you, uh, I'm so lonesome I could cry. You could put that, you know, you take, even take the melody out of that and that's, that's a beautiful poem with the imagery in that song. But, you're, but the point you make is, is right. Yeah, it's a melody that will... The melody is the most important thing. Or the voice. I mean, I don't think you can disassociate a song from the voice. Like it's Hank singing on Rambling Man or So Lonesome I Could Cry that conveys the power of those words. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah, just that, there's just that note, that keening note in his his voice that uh, says everything. Yeah, yeah, even, even more strongly than the words or the tune. You don't have many songs as such in this book, but you do have one by Archie Roach. How come you included that song? Uh, I just think it's a really important song, one of, one of the most important Australian songs of the 20th century, and I think it, it works as a poem. This is Took the Children Away. Took the Children Away, yeah. Of course, uh, I, I made a, a rule not to put song lyrics in this uh, poetry book, otherwise it would have opened up a huge... Pandora's box, I guess. But um, the good thing about making the rules is that you can also give yourself a couple of exceptions. So I did that with um, Kev Carmody, his song I've Been Moved, but that was written as a poem first, um, so I think it qualifies. There's a couple of songs in here that are actually poems first, so Danny Boy is a famous example. It was a, a poem long before it became a song. Then, of course, the song is such such a gorgeous melody that People only ever think of it now as a song, but it did exist as a poem first. What else? Streets of Laredo was a poem first. There's you know, many, many versions of that that song and that poem. You've mentioned Shakespeare's sonnets a lot, Paul, and obviously something you've recorded, something that you've included in this collection. And in those sonnets, he's always saying how writing is a way of outwitting time because the words are going to live on long after the poet is gone. Do you ever think about your own songs, your own songwriting like that? Oh, I think, you know, writing poetry or making art or 
or writing writing books is is a way of defying death or defying time. I think that's that's seems quite common amongst poets. Uh, Shakespeare, in particular, it's funny. It's almost like he's bragging some 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 of these sonnets about saying, you know, you're so beautiful, but um, and your beauty's going to die. And but don't worry, people are going to remember remember you through my poetry. But no, they don't remember the person at all. We don't know who that person. All the subjects of the sonnets, they're still arguing about who they are. Uh, what's remembered is the poetry, not the person. So, in a way, I, I think Shakespeare was doing a bit of a con job. one poet to another you can say that I'd love to hear one more song before we end I thought it could be good to end with the English Jesuit priest with Jared Manley Hopkins Pied Beauty okay Pied Beauty yeah Jared Manley Hopkins that was another poet that I encountered in school that the Catholics well it's taught by the Christian brothers they love Jared Manley Hopkins Um, and I've come to love him more and more as I've got older, he's he's a he's just a freak. He's just a, a incredible experimenter, a, a pioneer of of rhythm and and rhyme, syntax. His dark poems, his later poems, were very very dark. He's a Catholic priest that um, um, we've never got published in his own lifetime. Uh, incredible story, but we did. I remember God's grandeur in school. We did, and we also did Pied Beauty. Um, I put God's grandeur to music as well, um, which is on the last record. But a few years ago, John Olson was doing a. There was a retrospective of John Olson's paintings at the NGV in Melbourne, and he was uh, a big Jeremy Manley Hopkins fan, and had referenced the song Pied Beauty in one or more of his paintings and I was approached to uh, see if I wanted to do a song for for the uh, opening of the exhibition. So I put Pied Beauty to music. And I've done a recording of this song with the band, with Vicar and Linda singing and full, you know, full drums, bass, keyboards and, and a lot. But it's just... Um, so... It's in the drawer at the moment, waiting for the lighter day, but I'll have a crack at it solo. Oh, glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple colour as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple, Upon trout that swim, fresh fire cold, chestnut falls, finches' wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow and plough, and all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. Oh, glory be to God for dappled things. Oh, glory be to God for dappled things. All things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how. With swift, slow, sweet, sour, 
I dazzle dim me father's forth his beauty is past change praise him oh glory be to God for dappled things praise him oh glory be to God for dappled things Paul Kelly, thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. My pleasure. Thanks, Sarah. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.